Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 11 for an opening verse of Scripture before we go to John chapter 11. For any listening to this sermon later, I would recommend that you also access our website for the psalm that was just presented from Psalm 119, verses 59 and 60, and the prayer that was just prayed for you to understand a little of the context of us here in this assembly. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can come into thy house and worship thee this morning and thy glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard our songs. We have sung the wondrous story of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that we have a glorious Savior such as he is. We bless and praise thy name for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that in the process of time, the Lord Jesus Christ was sent forth to die on the cross for our sins, that we might receive the adoption of sons and become thy children, our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. In our flesh, we deserved condemnation. We were lost in sin. We were under thy judgment. We were the servants of the devil. But we are thankful the Lord Jesus Christ, based on thy eternal counsel, came forth to deliver us from that strong man and to make us his own children and to save us by his grace. We bless and praise thy name. Truly a wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord. And we praise thy name this morning for such a glorious Savior such as he is. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the Son of God, the man Christ Jesus, who willingly left the glories of heaven left the splendor, the riches that were his own, and came forth to be humbled in this world for us. To die the death of the cross at the hands of sinning, scornful men, his own people, to die for us. To take our sins upon himself and be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Father, we are thankful. We bless thy name. We pray for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one that stands between us and condemnation. He is the only one that stands between us and thy holy justice. But he stands there and is our hope and our surety of eternal life and of thy great grace in our lives. Our Father, we are thankful that he is the resurrection and the life. And we look forward to a day when he shall redeem these bodies and give us a body like unto his own, even as his is this time. We are thankful for that. We look forward to that day. Our Father, we have come to the 11th chapter of John where he said, I am the resurrection and the life, where he has 
one of the most notable miracles of his ministry in raising up his loved one, Lazarus, for his own glory and honor. Mm -hmm. Our Father, we are thankful for that, that miracle. We are thankful for his power and might. But, oh, Lord God, move us. Move us that we might live resurrected and glorified lives like unto the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in this great miracle. We rejoice in it, but Lord, help us to live lives of glory, of holiness, of righteousness for thee, that we might bear forth the life and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in our daily walk here in this world. Forgive us of our sins. Lord God, you see them all. Move us to repentance, as Jerry just told us about, and help us to walk in newness of life, bearing forth the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Help us to bear forth his image, to be made like unto him day by day. Our Father, the book is up here on the pulpit. Bless thy man as he comes forth to open up the precious pieces of Scripture and to break into John chapter 11. Lord, open his eyes, open our eyes, open thy book to us. Show us what you have for us from this passage. Lord, put thy spirit upon our brother. Enable him mightily that he may speak forth every word that you have for us this day. And Lord God, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and feet to go forth and do all that we should do for the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us now, we pray. Come down and meet with us. Prosper this time. Profit us in the hearing of thy word this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I would like, without taking away a thing from what Jerry said, because he did it excellently, is to share this with you in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist, and you just heard from a Baptist. Jerry the Baptist. But he, he hits you like John the Baptist. Jesus said, and there's quite a few verses here that we don't need to read, I'm going to just, I want 11 and 12, maybe 13. Verily I say unto you, Jesus explaining the ministry of John the Baptist, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. This is the Lord Jesus Christ explaining the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where it refers to Elijah the prophet, is actually describing metaphorically, prophetically, John the Baptist. But the kingdom of heaven was taken by violence because repentance is violent. The corresponding passage to this verse is Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. 
Since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached and every man presseth into it. How do you press into it? By thinking on your ways and turning your feet and delaying not to keep his commandments by violent repentance. The three people that we are about to meet in John chapter 11 repented because Jesus loved them. When the Bible tells us that Jesus loved sinners and that Jesus was a friend of sinners, Jesus loved repentant sinners, and he was a friend of repentant sinners. Jesus did not befriend those that were not repentant. Ask the Pharisees how Jesus befriended them. He befriended repentant sinners. And Lazarus, Martha, and Mary were repentant sinners. Let's go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We have come to the middle chapter of the Gospel of John. We don't need a lot of introductory material. We just want to get into it. We know what it's about. It's one of the chapters of John that are different than the other chapters of the other Gospels because it is dedicated to one main subject, and that's the raising of Lazarus from the dead and the details around it to point out a doctrine that we ought to believe, that Jesus has the power of resurrection and life himself and embrace that and live in the light of that. John chapter 11, let me read to you very quickly because that is what the Bible tells me to do. It doesn't tell me to tell you a story. It doesn't tell me to tell you what I've done the last couple of weeks. It tells me to read in the book in the law of God distinctly and give the sense. Let me read down through verse 26. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go, that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them, Plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go 
that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Amen Amen and amen. Where did John 11 come from? Why does it exist? Why was it written? How should it affect those reading it? John chapter 20, the writer tells us why he wrote it. That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing we might have life through his name. He told us in John chapter 20 that many things Jesus did, that if they were all written, the world could not contain the books. But these are written that we might believe. And John records fewer details than the other gospel writers because he expands those events and gives us whole chapters about them. Some events which the other gospel writers don't even tell us about. We have met individuals in this gospel that I hope you will remember and delight in that fact. This middle chapter of the gospel of John brings us to just a few weeks before he is crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. This glorious gospel declaration of power and hope against death is only for believers with changed lives. What has taken place this morning already is perfectly compatible and complementary if you're able to think through what has been said from Psalm 119 and what we are going to look at here. Lazarus and Martha and Mary were repentant, true, believing disciples indeed. That's why Jesus loved them. We want to be like them. There is no reason why you can't be like them. There is no reason why a child, a youth in this assembly cannot be like Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. The fault is most don't care. The fault is most make no effort to be like them. Most do not delight in sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary did in Luke chapter 10. Most don't delight in anointing his feet and wiping them with the hairs of her head like she did in John 12. It's a choice. The first words we heard this morning, men, 10 minutes before the hour, nearly an hour and a half ago, was that it's a choice. And it's a choice to be like Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. 
We want to see the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a notable miracle. But the doctrine contained in it is greater. And the encouragement by our Lord to believe it and to live by it is greater. And their hope, Martha and Mary, in their Savior is what we want to embrace ourselves. We don't want just an intellectual knowledge of the history that Jesus raised a man from a grave. We want more than that. We want to embrace that Son of God and love Him and dote on Him like those three friends of His did. John 11 is different than John 10 because there's very few metaphorical parables. There's no metaphorical parables here and there's few words that are used metaphorically and you've already heard me emphasize them by the tone of my voice when I read to you when Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death. It was indeed unto death. It just depends on how you're going to use those words. And Jesus used them metaphorically Then he used them without a metaphor when he spoke plainly. And so there's there's not like John 10 where we had some serious metaphorical parables there opening up that chapter. We can be energized by our Lord's loving care for friends and his great power to resurrect dead bodies. And we ought to be energized. We can rejoice knowing the future for our lives and our bodies and his use of even an enemy to declare his gospel in the last 10 verses of this chapter. There are lessons large and small to be seen in this chapter, and I have one or more for every verse. But let's not confuse it by making it more complicated than it is. A certain man, not a concept or a crowd, with his sisters were special friends of the great Lord of glory. That is a... These opening words are fantastic words. A certain man. The Bible, especially the Gospel of John, does not deal with a crowd or with a concept, but with individual men or women. There's a woman in John chapter 4. It's the woman of Sychar. It's the woman of Samaria. He knew all about her. He met her. He taught her. She went and brought the men of her city out to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. She told them about him because he had told her about him. These are individuals, and everyone in here can be like Lazarus or Martha or Mary, but very few ever are, even among Christians. Very, very few ever love Jesus Christ like those three siblings did. We have so many families in this church. There are so many siblings sitting here. Family is a worthless F word without the love of Christ being shared by brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter that your DNA is similar. You had no choice in your DNA. That was a choice God made. And it's worthless unless we seek out and help our brothers and sisters in the flesh love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter and Andrew did for each other. That's what James and John did for each other. That's what we want to do for each other. And so you siblings, I'm thankful to have a sibling here with me. I know he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to help him love him more. I want him to help me love him more. I remember days 
when we were both employed as financial analysts in Michigan. I remember a a time where we covenanted with each other that we were going to love the Lord Jesus Christ without competition in our lives. And all of you should be doing that that have brothers and sisters. That's what counts. Family's no more important than where you work. God gave you a job. Big deal. I am not talking about the commandments that God's given us in the Bible toward family members because God's also given us commandments in the Bible towards your master. What counts is the love of Christ. Let's be like these three siblings is my point. A certain man with, with his sisters were special friends of the great Lord of glory. That's a, that's a major part of this chapter. Prayer delays. And delays and answers to prayer, like the man born blind who had to wait his whole life before he was given sight, can be for God's glory if we could only see the end as to why God doesn't answer the prayer with our timing. And there's some delays in here, and and the delays are intentional. And Jesus tells us the delays are intentional. And that that intention irritates us a little bit, like it irritated Martha and Mary a little bit. Lord, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. They knew that he had the power to heal even a fatal sickness. But let's make sure that we learn the lesson about prayer as well. Situations you pray for can easily go from bad to worse. When they sent for Jesus, he was just sick. Then he died. You know, when you pray for something, then it gets worse. That's troubling. But God gets greater glory from it getting worse before it gets better. Our Lord's humility and humanity allows him to be touched and deeply so with the feeling of our natural infirmities. We're going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ of glory who wept and who was touched with the feelings of the infirmities of the mourners of Mary and Martha's grief about their dead brother. Political expedience can cause men to compromise or sacrifice justice and judgment for their own benefit. And Caiaphas is going to give us a great example of political expediency in saying, let's go ahead and kill the Lord Jesus Christ, the most innocent man he had ever met. He was high priest that year in order to save the nation, our jobs, our city, and our temple. Let's go ahead and kill an innocent man. That's political expediency, and it's all taught in this chapter. Let's not go through every verse with the lessons that are there. Let's get to the verses. Verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. A certain man. John chapter 3, Jesus met with Nicodemus. A Pharisee. At night. And revealed to him truth. That he would not reveal to believers in the last three verses of chapter 2. Any woman in here can be Mary or Martha. Any woman in here would want to be Mary, should want to be Mary rather than Martha. Though Martha was a good woman. She wasn't the best. Mary chose better things than Martha at times. Every man in here, every youth, every child, Lord, have mercy upon our church and grip some of our children 
Does it take flannel graph? Does it take a little doll named Lazarus? Does it take a movie? I don't believe it needs any of those things. It needs the grace of God in our children to grip them to want to be a Lazarus or a Martha or a Mary. Lord, convict. I cannot convict. I'll tell you, I am telling you that the first words bless me. The first words cause me to pray and beg. We don't care what grades you get in school in comparison to this. What a waste for you to worry about their grades in school compared to this. Grades in school are such a small part of professional success. There is so much more to that. And the, the larger part is being like these three and having God's blessing on you rather than some teacher's fawning, flattering, lying score in a grade book. Their athletic success. Who cares if they can play soccer or basketball or anything else? Who cares how much money they make on the job? And you know that these things are pressed in this church. And I rejoice in our young men as they make multiples of their age. But this is what counts. This is what's great. Lord, convict us. Let us help each other. Let us keep our priorities right. We live in the perilous times of the last days when the minds of Christians are on other things. They're unholy. They're unthankful. They're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Save us from that with our children. Who cares if your children are all successful? Who cares if your children have nice homes with nice families? Are your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren lovers of Jesus Christ and loved by Jesus Christ like these three siblings? John chapter 4 told us about the woman of Samaria. John chapter 5 told us about the man, the, the lame man that was healed by the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 9 told us about the man born blind. These are individuals, and here we have three siblings that we're told about. You are a certain man, woman, or child today, and you should trust our personal God that knows you. There are names written in the book of life. There's not numbers in the book of life. He's written, he's written your names on the palm of his hands. That it's as personal as it can get for the God of heaven to even stoop to the fact of having a hand and a palm of a hand and then to write a name on it. It's a certain man. You can delight in God and he will delight in you. You can be God's favorite like these three were God's favorites. You don't need your pastor. You don't need your spouse. You don't need a parent. You don't need a grandparent to be one of God's favorites. You need God. And you need to chase Him and pursue Him and seek Him and love Him and think on your ways and turn your feet and delay not to keep His commandments. It is true that you often get lost in the crowd. But that's only considering other men and women. 
You never get lost in the crowd with the Lord, ever. That's why it says a certain man. It just doesn't say there was a sick man. How boring of a Bible that would be. There was a sick man. There was a certain man. And look at, he knows his name. He knows his hometown and he knows his sister's names. And they're in the word of God. And men have had to read these names for 2,000 years. The name of a place that you've never been to and the name of two sisters. They're here to encourage you. And I want to try to motivate you to want to be like them. The hall of faith in Hebrews 11 lists names. They're individuals. They're individuals and they have specific personal deeds that are recorded there for us. God has chosen to deal individually with each man. And the gospel of John gives us lots of examples of it. And I've been through, listen to these examples. The Gadarene, the Canaanite woman, the thief on the cross. Not the thieves on the cross, the thief on the cross. A blind man, the eunuch, not eunuchs, the eunuch. Saul of Tarsus, not men of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. Cornelius, Lydia, the jailer. Oh, this is the word of God. Would to God, I could, by his blessing, encourage one to be God's favorite. Joseph, you can be God's favorite. It doesn't matter about your grandpas. It doesn't matter about your parents. It doesn't matter about your school teachers. It doesn't matter about your two brothers. It depends how much you love God and how much you want to obey God and read his Bible and repent of your sins and seek him and praise him and delight in him. Bethany was a little village on the side of the Mount of Olives, two miles from Jerusalem. Do you know what a furlong is? We're going to get to it in a moment. A furlong is one-eighth of a mile. It's not used much anymore today except in horse racing. Any horse race that's less than a mile is measured by furlongs. A furlong is an eighth of a mile. A six-furlong horse sprint, because that's not a course race, that's a sprint, is how far? That'd be three quarters of a mile. So Bethany was close by to Jerusalem. We need to know that because the Holy Spirit wants us to know that. That's why there was such a crowd there from Jerusalem to mourn with Martha and Mary, as we're going to get to that. But Lazarus is known by being Lazarus of Bethany. Jesus was known by being Jesus of Nazareth. So these are identified that way, and Martha and Mary are identified by being of Bethany and being siblings with Lazarus. Verse 2 is in parentheses. And it tells us that the Mary, referred to by name in verse 1, is the Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That's Lazarus' sister, the special Mary. Now, when did she do this? According to the Gospel of John. She did it in John chapter 12. In John 12, this event is told. Here, it's told anticipating the fact 
for you to appreciate Mary before you get to the history because this event took place before she wiped his feet. This is not the woman of Luke chapter 7. The woman of Luke chapter 7 was a great sinner and known as such. This is a different woman. The timing is totally different. You say, why would John put it in advance in parentheses? For some very good reasons. For you to appreciate this family. That's why it's there. And because when John wrote this gospel, whether he wrote it one year later or 10 years later, or 50 years later, like it is presumed many years later from the event, this woman, Mary, and this event of anointing his feet with ointment and wiping them with the hairs of her head had been prophesied by Jesus to be given to her as a memorial throughout the world and in all time. Because Matthew's account of it and Mark's account of it Jesus said, what this woman hath done will be told as a memorial for her forever because there were disciples that criticized her for wasting money. Are you with me? Because of that fact, everyone knew about Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. So it's stuck in here for you to know that it is this Mary. That's exactly what it says. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. All Christians know about a woman named Mary that anointed the feet of Jesus, and they always knew about this woman. And so for John, years later, maybe on the Isle of Patmos, maybe before that, when he wrote this gospel, all he had to do was write this. Everybody already knew about the woman and the event. And he's saying, this is the one, this is the family I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit gave us all that. That's how we understand verse 2. It's not Luke chapter 7 and the great sinner. This is Matthew and Mark and John chapter 12. More can be said on it, but it's not necessary. It'll distract us. Verse 3, Therefore his sisters sent unto him, Martha and Mary sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. They knew that Jesus loved them. When Jesus loves you, you'll know it. And when you love the Lord Jesus Christ, he will love you. And when you keep his commandments, he will love you. Do you know that he has, by the power of his spirit, to turn on the brightest searchlight that you have ever seen inside your heart and to shine into every nook and cranny of it to display the love of God for you? It says so in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. For the Holy Spirit is given unto us and sheds abroad in our hearts. Now, if it's in your heart, how, how does it shed abroad? It fills every nook and cranny with the fact that God loves you. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I have shown you before from John chapter 14 that Jesus said, if a man will keep my commandments, my Father will come, and I will come, and we will abide with that man, and we will love that man. There are degrees of love that you can achieve and receive from God that are not the the basic love that God has for his elect. It is a personal, affectionate love of his favorites. Of the 12 apostles, there were three that were special. Peter, James, and John. 
When Jesus did anything special, he took those three. The other nine did not go. Peter, James, and John. Andrew, Peter's brother, did not go. Peter, James, and John. You can be a favorite. David, at the end of his life, told Israel, Israel's huge. Judah's the largest tribe. My father had a large family of eight sons in the tribe of Judah, but he liked me. David made that possible. God blessed David, but David was obedient to his calling. What you heard today in the strong wording of Jerry, and it was totally appropriate, and I could share some things about how appropriate it is by a pastor that I have traded correspondence with this week, but I will not do so for the sake of the recording. We are not fatalists. We do not fall back on the grace of God to do everything for us. The grace of God is something that we are supposed to use as leverage. This week, I called it your fulcrum. Did I hear an engineer in here somewhere? I think we have a few. A fulcrum is the grace of God. And we should leverage that grace of God and lift great things. And it's a choice to delight in God, to read his word, to meet him, to know him, love him, sing songs, and pick up the words because you love the being that you're singing about. Not because you like the melody, not because you like the parts, but the object of the singing, the person of the singing. Everyone in here can be God's favorite. I worked in the last couple of weeks on our outline called Knowing God. One of the attributes that God has revealed to us about God that is not in systematic theologies is his divisibility. Do you know what that means? All of you can be God's favorite. But there are hardly any of God's favorites in the earth because there are so few in these carnal times that care about making him first in their lives. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest. They knew Jesus loved their brother. Now verse 5 is going to tell us that Jesus loved their brother and loved each of the two sisters as well. Verse 4. When Jesus heard that, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, there would have been messengers there that would have carried this hopeful message back. And the disciples heard it. This sickness is not unto death. I love the word of God. This sickness is not unto death. Did Lazarus die? He indeed died. The the whole argument of chapter 11 is that he died. But Jesus said this sickness is not unto death. So there's a way that we're supposed to understand death. And it's going to help us when we get to verses 25 and 26. Because it's going to say there, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Can you handle that? Even though we might die? Lazarus isn't dead, though he was dead. Okay. Thank you, Lord. I love his word. If somebody wants to come into John chapter 11 and find fault with God for writing it this way, I'm going to help you by showing you more in the Bible like that. Because you show that you don't fear God or love God. I love the way that he writes his Bible. He makes us think about words a little more carefully. He tells us the rule. It's in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 13. 
that we are supposed to compare spiritual things with spiritual things in order to understand the way the Holy Spirit uses words. Words. So here's a, here's a lesson for us. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. This sickness is going to result in the glory of God. Death becomes an insignificant thing if God's going to get glory from an event. Can you believe that? Amen. That even death can be an insignificant thing, and we can even mock it, and we can call it sleep as long as God gets glory out of it. Right. That the Son of God might be glorified thereby. When Jesus is glorified, God is glorified because God is his Father who sent him into the world. And so Jesus explains what the rest of John chapter 11 is all about. The glory of God and the glory of the Son of God. Believest thou this? Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art that Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Yes, God got glory out of this chapter, and Jesus Christ got glory out of this chapter, and that's what we want to aim for in this church, in our lives, in our families, among siblings. The glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ, not the glory of anything else. We live in the greatest nation in the history of the world, but we don't want to speak much about the glory of America. We want to speak about the glory of Jesus Christ. Right. We have a wonderful church, but let's not speak about the glory of the church without emphasizing the glory of the head of our church. Amen. Always, that in all things, he might have the preeminence. Right. Because it's for the glory of God. That is preeminence. That is eminence. I wish I was divisible. Because I would have every single one of you by your lapels. And you would be getting flecks of my saliva in your face. I know that's disgustingly gross. But I would be intensely reasoning with you to be like one of these siblings. Right. And to give glory to God in your life. And glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in your life without peer. Without competition. It's a choice. Very few want to do it. In our church, we're going to talk about it. I'm going to press you toward it. You Bible quizzers, when you're learning those verses, forget the rote memory. What are they saying to you about God? What are they saying to you about His Son, Jesus? Embrace the one they're talking about. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What a personal aspect of our Lord. He had a preference for these three siblings that followed him. Here's the greatest goal for siblings in a family. Do they love Jesus Christ and are they loved by Jesus Christ? Notice why this would not be said if this was not a love that was uniquely special or it has no meaning. For those that think God loves everyone equally and indiscriminately, what a waste of scripture right here in this fifth verse. There's some way that Jesus loved these three differently than others or the words have no meaning. They have meaning because the sisters have already appealed to them. Jesus is going to weep. Jesus is going to reveal truth and personally to these women tell them about his power separate from God and reveal his deity to them like he seldom does to an individual. There's special relationship here. 
May the Lord bless our church to have many more. Amen. Every Listen, there are two women. Any girl in here that thinks I can't, I'm not a boy, so I can't be God's favorite. Do you know who you read about the most of these three siblings in the Bible? Let me tell you who you don't read about very much. You don't know anything about Lazarus. Check me out. Do, do you know who you do know about? His two sisters. Oh, yeah. Mary Grace, you think you're too young? You're not too young. You can love Jesus like no one else loves him if you choose to love him that way. I'm not angry. I'm just desperate. And all the parents should understand that. We should all be desperate for our children. For this desperation right here, let's be desperados as parents for our children. Lord, don't give us any children. Who in the world wants to have a baby unless that baby can be dedicated to worship God like Hannah Samuel worshipped him? Why in the world do you want to procreate? If they don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, what a waste of the birth canal. What a waste of every aspect of child training and raising if they don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make sure we keep our priorities what they should be. There's nothing wrong with having favorites. Our Lord had them. He distinguished Peter, James, and John on numerous occasions. Verse 6, When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. He is in Bethabara, on the other side of the Jordan River, because he went there at the end of chapter 10 to get away from the Jews in Jerusalem who wanted to kill him. There were two attempts made in his life in John chapter 10, and he's where John first baptized, so we know where he was. And he just stayed there. Because it was only 25 miles away, he could have got there in five hours with a good walk, because they knew how to walk in those days. They didn't walk quite like some people I see walking in this world that are pacing themselves through life. They could travel by walking. And so 25 or 30 miles could be covered in five or six hours with a good walk. But Jesus stayed where he was for two days there on the other side of the Jordan River. He'll explain why. But we need, we need to embrace that, that sometimes Jesus may abide somewhere and not come running at our beck and call. And when he doesn't come running at our beck and call, we need to trust him that he still has the power. It's not because he can't help us. It's because he's chosen a different time to help us. And if he's chosen a different time to help us, there's likely a greater measure of his glory that he's going to get out of it. As in this case. Verse 7, Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. They had just been there in John 10. Let's go there again. Verse 8, his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. This is in the last 15 verses of John 10. And goest thou thither again? We left that city because you were at risk of losing your life. Now you want to go back? Remember, I told you that this is very close to his crucifixion. Yes, he's ready to go back. He's ready to go back near that place. Verse 9 and 10 together. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? 
If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Let me just quickly summarize this for This is not mystical. This is not spiritual. This is practical. The light here is the sun. The lack of light is the night. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If we say that a day has 12 hours in it, what part of the day are we talking about? The daylight hours of the day. If a man walks during the daylight, he stumbleth not because he has sunlight to guide and direct him. If he walks at night, he's going to fall, trip, and get into trouble. Jesus knew that he had a few hours left in his day. He was not worried at all about going to Jerusalem because he had, this is just a practical lesson of when you have a duty to do and you are still able to do it, go do that duty and don't fear the consequences because you still have light shining upon you, the light of God's providence and the light of God's direction and your duty to go do what you ought to do. This is not some mystical statement. He is answering his disciples. You were, you were leery of being around Jerusalem because of the fear of death. Now you're wanting to go back there. He knew that his time was drawing to a close and that he wasn't going to stumble and nothing bad was going to happen to him until it was the right time for those bad things to happen. But while he had daylight, he was going to work. Have you ever heard the expression from anyone, I want to burn myself out for such and such a cause. I want to burn myself out for the Lord. While the light shines, while we have life, because a living dog is better than a dead lion, let us apply ourselves to what God wants us to do. And that is all Jesus is teaching in verses 9 and 10. There's not some mystical explanation for me to give you. If I knew one, I'd tell you one. But there isn't. He's just explaining to them, I'm not worried. I still have the light of day on my job. You know he didn't need actual sunlight. He's using sunlight as the illustration for most professions at that time. They did them during the day. So you don't even know how to think like normal people. Because now we have three shifts a day. We have these 12-hour shifts during the night. People didn't work like that in the past. They worked during daylight. With the invention of electricity in the last 100, 125 years, we've corrupted lifestyle. But not here. This light is the greater light that rules the day, and then there's a lesser light that rules the night, but the lesser light has such little light, especially in a number of days during the month, that you can't work by it. So Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? That means, are there not 12 hours of daylight? If any man walk during the daylight, he's not going to get in trouble, he's not going to fall down and stumble, because he's got the light of the world directing his way, and the light of the world is not Jesus, the light of the world is the sun. You see, but are there other places in John where Jesus said, I am the light of the world, but it means Jesus and doesn't mean that? Yes! That's why we're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth, lest we shame ourselves in our doctrine. But if a man walk in the night, if a man tries to work at night, when the time has closed to work, if he tries to work past the time that God's given him to work, he's going to get in trouble and fall and stumble. And Jesus said, I won't do that. 
I just have a little bit of light left. We're going to run into this again before we get out of the Gospel of John. But while I've got light, I'm going to work. We're going back to Jerusalem. I've got things to do there. Was this a, was this a thing to do there? What did he evoke by going back and doing this? He evoked Caiaphas, the high priest that year, to utter a prophecy of his substitutionary atonement for the elect of God among the Gentiles. It's a pretty strong statement at the end of this chapter. And this is one of the reasons Jesus had to go and work. He was still under God's favor of having it the light of day. You say, I was hoping for something deeper. Don't hope for that. Just come to me afterwards and I'll give you some deeper places that you won't hope for. Let's thank God when there are lighter places and shallower places that we can ford the stream of God's word. These things said he, verse 11, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death by the word sleep, which is used in both Testaments for us believers. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep, that Lazarus was just refreshing himself with a nap or a few days off of sleeping in bed. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To keep him from dying is what's implied. To the intent ye may believe, nevertheless, let us go unto him. Jesus wants us, Jesus wanted them to believe that he had the power of life and death and resurrection himself, and he did. And he's going to display it in John chapter 11. Mary is going to say, Lord, I know that now if you were to ask God, he would give you whatever you asked. I know that God could raise Lazarus if you were to ask him. She's making a a transition from modest faith toward greater faith, and Jesus is helping her along. I read it with emphasis, and we'll come to it after our break. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I don't need to ask the Father, because the Father is in me. I am not alone. The Father is with me. I am the resurrection and the life. When he stood at the mouth of the sepulcher of Lazarus, and the stone was removed, he did not pray, God, would you please raise Lazarus? Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. That is our Savior. Who's going to be the Lazarus or the Marthas and the Marys? I'd rather be a Mary than a Lazarus, based on what we know about the three of them from the Bible. I've said it. I can't say it again. I'd be wasting time. I'd be redundant. The Lord has his favorites. The Lord loves some more than others in a practical manifestation of his personal fellowship and friendship with them. May this church have many of them.